are listening to Weird, Obscure, Impossibly Unsafe. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of our show. We plan to give you some of that sweet, sweet, <laughs> weird shit. So sweet. Like, like if this podcast is a soft serve machine, we're pulling that lever and delivering that audiological soft serve mm. right into your ear cones. Mmm. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Who are we? I'm Melissa. I'm Anna Marie. And I'm Jacob. And I guess we'll introduce the how we know the person sitting to our right, which the people listening, you don't know, but you will know who's sitting on our right, because that's the person that we're going to be introducing. So I know Anna Marie because I am married to her. I actually knew her before I was married to her. <laughs> no, this is the first time we've ever met, ever. Just uh, that's a weird way to talk about your wife. <laughs> Oh my god, this person, I just got married and suddenly she's Now I know her. Uh, So yeah, we met in grad school, we had classes together, we used to go swing dancing a lot, we need to get back into that. Yeah, we do. Um, And we both share a love of weird and scary movies, uh, which evolved into weird and scary things in general. Yeah. It's quite a romance. (laughs) Quite a love story, indeed. Um, okay, so I know Melissa because we, well, we met in grad school as well when we were both working at our school's IT help desk. So we were just answering calls. Hashtag the tech zone. Yeah. So we were just answering those phone calls, Mm -hmm. helping with those... This is the most interesting part of the the episode where we tell you all the IT problems that we solve. Well, what was exciting about it was that neither of us have a background in IT and everything was just Googleable, Googleable and just on the spot, on the job learning. Mm -hmm. So we really grew together through that. And it's a Cinderella story. It really is. <laughs> and Melissa was in our wedding party as well, one of my bridesmaids. Um, and I we, can confirm that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it did. She did happen. a great job. Yes. Oh, thank great. You. Yeah. Very standing up there. Yeah. Very supportive. <laughs> yeah. Felt well supported. And we discovered our mutual love of horror movies at the Tech Zone, where we were just we would watch horror movie trailers. There During. was something that you said that you guys watched in the tech zone that I was shocked that the other day. There's probably a lot of those things, oh. actually. We watched The Quiet Place in the tech zone once, and it was so hard to do because it's so quiet and you have to have your eyes on it. Uh, but No, I, I meant something really vulgar and disgusting. I think it was because I watched Tenacious D in the oh, that's of what Destiny's. It was. <laughs> but, but I was by myself. I was working the late gotcha, shift. Gotcha, gotcha. I was alone in the I was the like, office. you can't watch that at work. We've watched other th- worse Wars. things. Okay. We've watched, we watched my... Eric Andre in there. <laughs> my Strange Addiction. Oh, oh I remember gets, that. that. Gets, uh, I remember that. Far out. Yeah. Anyway, so that's how Melissa and I know each other in yeah. a nutshell, I guess. Yeah, and um, this kind of makes sense how I know Jake through Anna Marie. <laughs> but yeah, we met in grad school and I just got to know Jake through movie nights and watching horror movies and... You know, 
being haunted in their wedding. Houses. Yeah, we've been to haunted houses together. And she was in our wedding. Yes. Well, yeah. And that's when we all really met for the first time. <laughs> exactly. That's when Jake and I met for the first time. Yeah. Wow. Those arranged marriages. <laughs> just kidding. That's not true. But yeah, he's, he's so much more than just Anna Marie's husband. <laughs> but for real, if Anna Marie uh, didn't know both of us, me and Melissa wouldn't hang out. Yeah. <laughs> They actually only speak through me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I actually refuse to speak to Melissa directly. Uh, Anna Marie, please tell Melissa that I'm excited about this episode. Anna Marie, please tell Jake. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> uh, so the way that this works is that each episode, each of us will bring some sort of weird or obscure thing (laughs) or maybe possibly unsafe possibly yeah um each week to the to share with the rest of the group and with all of you our Mm. listeners um so just stuff that we get really excited about and we just need to tell others yeah this this podcast is literally a audio like trash can where we just throw all of our weird interests in Yeah. yeah maybe maybe more like a like a like a crock pot hmm. and we're and we're simmering a stew of sundry is that right sundry different I don't know. what what does sundry mean <laughs> i don't really we're know. simmering a stew of just various random weirdnesses an amalgamation of many weird yeah. things yeah. boiling Man. together you are on point with the food metaphors today. Oh, I was going to say, I think, it's, <laughs> I think I, Anna Marie, I'm sorry to say that's a simile. He said, like, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, that's true. Ooh, tell man. Melissa to, <laughs> to fucking step down. <laughs> yeah, Melissa, step down. <laughs> Just kidding. Unfortunately, Anna Marie, can you tell Jake that unfortunately he's going to have to listen to me for the next <laughs> 25 minutes? But I also think that's a... <laughs> really good segue yeah perhaps so we're each gonna take a turn telling a story and the first one up is tell melissa she's up hey melissa you're up (laughs) so my story for the very first episode of our podcast is about the man with the endless hunger or tarer and i know i played for you how to pronounce it is his first name Jacques? I, I put I put fifty cents on his first name being Jacques. So we don't know if Tarer is his last name, first name, or just a pseudonym for him. Like we so, don't know. Oh. So we we, j- we only know him by Talel. Talel. Yes, that's what he's known by. We can call him Mister T. I'm just gonna say Tarer because okay. I am bad at French. That works. Okay, my sources are Wikipedia. An article by Mark Oliver on allthatsinteresting.com and an article by Chris Levin on ripleys.com. So, Talel <laughs> is not to be confused with the Eastern Commune of, in France or with the British thoroughbred racehorse that won the 1826 Doncaster St. Ledger oh, race. Thanks. See, Thank that's you the one I was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, yeah, that horse. Um, or the opera by Antonio Salieri. Oh, okay. So apparently this is like a common name, whatever. So Terrer was a French man who lived about 250 years ago who had a famously unstoppable hunger. 
Though generally described as apathetic, his one drive in life was to eat. That's that's my life. <laughs> I think he takes it to the next level. You'll, you, you'll hear. So I want you to prepare yourself for the true story of a man whose insatiability forced him to do odd and unspeakable things for the sake of a good meal. Mm. Uh, you ready? If they're truly unspeakable, then... I'll speak them. Okay. I'll go ahead. I'll All right, good. <laughs> Only good. I was about to say, them. that's difficult in an audio medium. Mm-hmm. I'll gesture the whole time. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> okay. So, Terrer was born in 1772 in rural Lyon, France. The man's birth was unrecorded, and it's not known if Terrer is his real name, like I was saying before, or if it's a nickname, or um, it's just something they called him. Um, but apparently throughout his life, that's what he's referred to as, even during his life. Even when Terrer was a young pup, he had a huge appetite. As a teenager, he could eat one quarter of a cow... About which is about his own body weight in cow meat oh in a gosh. single day. Oh my gosh. What? <laughs> and I'm sure you can imagine cows are probably expensive. Um, and he was too expensive for his parents to keep feeding him, so they forced him to leave his home when he was just a teenager. Oh my gosh. So I mean, but... He's eating like if you're, a yeah, cow every four days. It's just literally unsustainable. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that. I'm sorry. My parents always used to threaten to kick me out of the house for eating too much. Really? Yeah. Playfully or? uh, Yeah, playfully. Because when me and my brother were, especially when we were teenagers, like we would like literally eat like two or three pizzas at night, especially after football practice. Oh Oh my gosh, yeah. It was crazy. I remember those post, yeah, those, those post practice dinners that I would just harf down. Not that I played football, but Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So, the next... So, Tyrer spent the next few years of his life on the streets with a band of thieves and sex workers begging and stealing to survive. He eventually got a job as a warm-up act to a traveling charlatan magician dude. Um, In 1788, when Tyrer was 16, he then moved to Paris and became a successful street performer on his own. Um, and then for his act, I'm sure you're wondering, how is he going to use this eating for an act? Yes. Um, <laughs> what he would do is eat corks and stones and live animals. Oh. And he would swallow an entire basket full of apples one after another. And then was also known to eat snakes. Um, yeah. That's that's pushing it for me i understand eating a quarter of a cow i don't i i can't deal with snakes though and also it's how did he not choke on those apples or like the live animals you know i don't know i don't know if he's chewing or just kind of swallowing them whole but it seems like he's skipping a few steps (laughs) he's got a shortcut (laughs) into mouth straight to stomach yeah okay so 1792, when Terrer was 20 years old, the War of the First Coalition began and Terrer joined the French Revolutionary Army. To make up for the insufficient military rations that he was given to eat, he would carry out tasks for other soldiers in exchange for their rations, and then he'd scavenge the dung heap for additional scraps because Mm. 
his rations plus the rations of other soldiers was not enough to satisfy him. And he was soon admitted to the military hospital. Yeah, he was cool. still um, starved even after eating an excessive amount of food. Um, wow. And he had like fainted and passed out. And so then he was taken to the, the hospital. Um, even when he was at the hospital, he continued to scavenge gutters, garbage containers. He would eat scraps of food left by other patients and he would creep into the apothecary, which is the pharmacy and then eat poultices for, which is like medicines as sustenance. Uh, I was just about to ask about poultices. Hmm. What is that again? It's like, um, it's just like pharmaceutical remedies could be anything from what we think of as today as modern medicine or, you know, how Coke so, did help some people back so in the day. So he was literally like eating pills. Yeah, he was just eating pills to consume something, <coughs> fill up his stomach. Oh my gosh. At this point, when he's at the hospital, three military surgeons, Dr. Cruelville... Cruella de Vil. Cruella de Vil, (laughs) Georges, Didier, and Baron Percy um, were so intrigued by him that they decided to keep him in the hospital so they could conduct experiments on him and kind of better understand. In the 19th century, that's never good. Mm -mm. Um, 1792. Oh, in the 18th century, that's (laughs) never good. Bring it back, century. It's also not good in the 19th century. It's probably not good now either. It's probably just not good in general. In general. Never ends well for the test subject. We'll just put a blanket over it. Just not good. Nothing's (laughs) good. It's not good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so mainly what they wanted to test was his capacity for food. They would often present him with food and then see how much he could eat, which he didn't mind because he just loved to eat. Um, He once ate an entire meal prepared for 15 laborers, which included two large meat pies and plates of grease and salt. Four gallons of milk as well. So he immediately ate all that stuff and then fell asleep. So it's like a Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, yeah, but also so he plates drank, of grease. He, <laughs> yeah, he drank four gallons of milk. Yes. Can I do a little sidebar real quick? Yes. Uh, at my school, there was a group of people called the Underdog Pound that would show up to our football games, and they all were all painted up. And then every time we scored a touchdown, they'd run a lap around the around the um track or whatever they're called the underdog pound instead of the dog pound because we were had a very bad football team oh (laughs) (laughs) but um so and it was usually like juniors and seniors and and you basically had to go through like this initiation ritual to get in i was never in it i never wanted to be in it uh but i did happen to be uh in the same space as them conducting that ritual one time and it Uh... was that you had to chug a gallon of milk which is actually like some for some reason physically impossible. It, it is physically impossible. Yeah. I, I looked this up. So so <laughs> like you you will puke like before you finish a gallon of milk. Mm-hmm. And um and oh sorry. Well, I was just gonna say it because uh, the reason I always heard is because your stomach can't expand to do it, but there might be a different reason. But it, this guy drinking four gallons of milk and mm-hmm. like you know presumably not puking is yeah something seriously wrong. Mm-hmm. And or something's very right. <laughs> um, Imagine wish, how much ew. ice cream he could eat. I oh, know. Anna Marie, you wouldn't even care. You don't I'm, even want the ice cream. You know what? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> Anna Marie doesn't care about anything. 
Um, but yeah, what I what I found when I looked it up because I have heard like you can't finish a gallon of milk in an hour or something <coughs> like that. And why? It has to do with the the lactic acid or something in that's a component of milk specifically. You could, I believe drink water that much water in an hour it's specific something specific to milk Mm. see that's why that's part of the reason and then i'm gonna let you finish but that's part of the reason that i think that this is like inability to like digest and absorb nutrients because like he could put all that in his stomach and then it's just like sort of just going right through it's not like being Mm. absorbed into the system you know Yeah. yeah i think that's definitely part of it so he ate all this milk, he ate a bunch of grease, he ate a bunch of salt. We've known him to eat medicine too, so obviously right. he's not absorbing some stuff. Nothing's um, off the table. <laughs> nothing's, or rather, it's all on the table. It, it's all on the table, then immediately into his mouth. Bit. For a little <laughs> bit, and then it's <laughs> off again in his stomach. Um, okay, so they did this experiment, and they noticed after he ate everything and he fell asleep, they observed that his stomach expanded and became very taut. So it almost, it was described that he almost looked like he was pregnant. Like, that's how distended his stomach looked compared to the rest of his body. Because, like, was he an average-looking person, um, like, build? He was very skinny, and I'll, I'll describe what he looks like oh, a little okay. bit more in a minute. Um, on a separate occasion, they presented him with a live cat. And cover your ears if you like cats, because this part, this is what he did to the cat. Um, and this is a recorded observation. He tore the cat open by the abdomen with his teeth and drank its blood. He ate the entire cat aside from the bones and then puked up the fur and skin. Oh. So he just like downed Yikes. that cat. Oh my god. So gross. Oh. The poor little meow. Um. He also ate other animals that they presented him with, such as snakes, like I said, lizards, puppies, an entire eel without chewing. Oh my gosh. I just, I gotta say, you just glossed over the puppies. I mean, that's way worse than cats. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get into detail about the puppies. So it's just all right. I don't really want to hear it either. (laughs) Just we'll just we'll just gloss over that one. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. If he's a monster for eating a cat, he's even worse for eating puppies. Yeah. I'm just saying. So, you'll find this quote interesting. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So, a quote from Dr. Baron Percy's notes says, The dogs and cats fled in terror at his aspect, (laughs) as they had anticipated the kind of fate he was preparing for them. God. So, he was just a frightening, frightening man. Oh, my God. Yeah, I... I don't know what to say. <laughs> I bet dogs and cats hide, and stuff hide your can cats, like, hide your dogs. <laughs> yeah. I I bet dogs and cats can like smell like murderous intent, you know. Uh, probably cats definitely can. They must learn. I mean, I'm sure back then cats and dogs are running in like packs, you know. They're yeah. getting picked off one by one. I'm just picturing him like walking down the street and then just hordes of cats and dogs just like fleeing Parting away from him. Seas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um and I can't remember if I'm if this comes later or not, but I know there was a quote of him like fighting with street dogs for scraps, where he was like, because oh, he right, was right, eating right. scraps in the garbage too, and that's what dogs, you know, mooching off of people. Yeah, mm-hmm. he would like fight with them. Anyways, um, so after these experiments, the military decided that that would be a good idea to use his gift um, to make him a courier during the war. So. 
What they wanted to do is have him eat a wooden box containing secret documents, and then he would, with the box in his stomach, go across enemy lines and then deliver messages to someone without looking like he was carrying something suspicious, and if he was caught, he wouldn't have anything on him. Um, They tested this out before sending him out, so he was able to swallow the box, and then after after two days, he pooped out the box, and the document inside the box was still legible. Well, <laughs> the looks on your faces. Well, it just sounds so. So the thing is, I'm sure the box was tiny, but like in my brain, I was just thinking about like a like a square like cubic uh-huh. foot, like an eleven know? by eleven by eleven yeah, box. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that, and I was mm-hmm. just thinking about pooping that out, and it, yeah. It, oh. it felt bad. Oh. It's not to me. It, I'm picturing like super rough, like unfinished edges, like scratching. Yeah. Oh. Um, so Dr. Cruelville proposed <laughs> that they Cruella use Deville. Cruella Deville. Also, Cruelville, if that's his name, is like just. It's me not it knowing how to bad. pronounce yeah. French. It's C O U R V I L L E. Oh. He proposed that. Dr. Cruelville proposed that they use him to send messages over enemy lines because if they searched him, he wouldn't have anything on him. Um, in exchange, they gave Tarer a wheelbarrow wheelbarrow full of 30 pounds of raw bull's lungs and liver, which he immediately ate in front of an assembly of generals. So he was just like harfing all that stuff down. Right in front of them. Oh my gosh. Um, so he was briefly a spy, um, and they disguised him as a German peasant, but he wasn't able to speak German, and he attracted so much attention, probably because dogs and cats were fleeing at his sight, and he was eating everything <laughs> that he was immediately caught and then imprisoned. You're probably wondering what this Sorry. interesting man looks like. So he was actually very slim and average height. Um, at the age of 17, he weighed only 100 pounds, and he always looked like he was starving. He had unusually soft, fair hair and an abnormally wide mouth. Quote, his massive, deformed jaw would swing open so wide that he would pour a whole basket full of apples down his mouth and hold a dozen of them in his cheeks like a chipmunk. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so... Yeah. That's pretty awesome. He had a huge like capacity not only in his stomach but in his mouth as well. And his cheeks were super stretched out because uh, he like would a cram. Hamster. Yeah, he would cram so much food in his mouth so fast often that like his cheeks got stretched out over time. And it's noted here that his cheeks were wrinkled and hung loosely because he would they got so stretched out from eating so fast and like shoving things in his mouth that they just kinda like got stretched and when he wasn't eating, hang loose. Um, He could also hold 12 eggs or apples in his mouth, Um, and it was noted that... Wait, wait, wait. there's a huge difference between 12 eggs and 12 apples. He could probably hold a lot more eggs than that, right? I'm I'm assuming so, but are you trying to crack them? Are they cracking them and then right into his mouth, or are you holding them and trying to be delicate? You know, if you can hold 12 actual apples in your mouth... And you're allowed to crack the eggs, you could probably hold like 36 eggs in your yeah. mouth. Yeah. You know what I mean? I imagine so. So, just, uh, just my thoughts. <laughs> you have a lot of ideas about the eggs. <laughs> so, his teeth were heavily stained, and for some reason, they noted he had almost invisible lips. Invisible lips? This isn't a quote. Almost invisible lips. So maybe he just, you know, some people have really thin lips. I'm not okay. really sure. I gotcha. So, like, just 
aside from the stretched out cheeks, just very mm-hmm. thin features. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe they, they were so thin because his face had been so stretched and there was like nothing left. You know? Gotcha. So when he hadn't eaten, like I mentioned before, um, his skin would hang loose, not in, not in addition to his cheeks, but also in his stomach. So like I said, when he was full of food, he looked almost like he was pregnant. But then when he hadn't had a meal that would all hang loose and he could wrap the skin from his stomach all the way around his waist to the other side um after eating his stomach would distend kind of like a balloon so his body was also hot to the touch hot 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 to the touch he was so sweaty and he constantly (laughs) he constantly smelled foul he could be smelled from 20 paces away. The smell would get worse after he'd eaten, which is an interesting fact. I'm not sure huh. why that would occur. Yeah. That's His weird. eyes and cheeks would get very red and a, quote, visible vapor would rise from his body. So he, like, really smelled and he looked, like, steamy. Like those cartoon stink lines? Yeah, cartoon stink lines everywhere. He would then become lethargic and belch a lot. And then, we, as we know, he just falls asleep. I get that, though. Yeah. Yeah, that seems pretty typical. <laughs> so, um, he had chronic diarrhea quoted to be fetid beyond conception, and he never seemed to gain weight. It's kind of, this is kind of bumming me out, because, like, if he lived, like, now, he could probably get treatment. Yeah. And mm. not be, like, an outcast. Yeah, I yeah. Know. So he lived such a life where he like was constantly craving food, and that has to be like a miserable way to live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Knowing that he felt like he was starving all the time. Yeah. I mean, I can't even go without a snack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's very hard just to even spend like a minute being like, I need to eat now, but yeah. to like, live like that forever. <laughs> yeah, he was probably chronically hangry. Oh, yeah. poor guy. Additionally. Um, doctors seem to believe that he did not ha- exhibit any other unusual behavior um, or show se- show any signs of mental illness other than just being apathetic in general. That was kind of his attitude in life. So the, actually the, those doctors did attempt to cure him, to help him. Um, but like we said, we're in like the 1790s. You know, resources are limited compared to what we have now. So after he was captured and released um, after the war, Terrer wanted to avoid military service, so he returned to the hospital and asked to be cured. Um, they tried to treat him with laudanum, which is opium, wine vinegar, tobacco pills, and large quantities of soft boiled eggs. Eggs are important. Mm. Yeah, they are. <laughs> um, attempts were made to suppress his appetite to keep him um, on a controlled diet, which failed, so they would try to like keep him... I don't know how they would restrain him, maybe just like limit the amount of food they would provide him. But then he ended up sneaking out of the hospital. And like I said, he would fight stray dogs yeah. scavenging <coughs> for offal, which is organ meat, in food, um, in alleys and rubbish heaps. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you don't give him food, he's going to go puppy hunting. Yeah. Oh, no. So this is this is one of the most notable things, th- this next part. Um, he was caught several times drinking the blood of patients undergoing bloodletting. So he would sneak out of his bed at night and then try to get drink their blood. And he also was found at, um, in the mortuary attempting to eat bodies because he was so hungry. Oh, my God. Yikes. That, that takes it to a oh, completely new level. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and really sadly, a 14-month-old child disappeared from the hospital, and Terrer was suspected. Don't say that. Yeah, he was suspected, so they chased him from the hospital. Oh. You guys are so put off by this story. Oh, there's nothing Such good about bummer. that. Oh. He was a hungry boy. <laughs> <laughs> One could say that, indeed. So, Terrer died in 1798 at the age of 26, which I am not even that old yet, which is so scary. Um, Terrer died of tuberculosis, though he claimed he died because he swallowed a golden fork two years prior and never passed it. Um, a golden fork? Yes. He, he claimed that? He claimed that. There was a golden fork stuck in him, and that's what was hap- that was what was wrong with him. Oh. Um, the doctors were reluctant to do an autopsy because he smelled so awful. Um, oh, no. um, but they were so curious that they decided, you know, to give it a try. The autopsy showed some interesting things like he had an abnormally wide gullet. When his jaws were opened, they could see all the way down a broad canal into his stomach. So you could see his stomach from his open mouth. There's a shortcut. There was a yep. shortcut. Yep. His liver and gallbladder were abnormally large and his stomach was enormous and covered with ulcers. But oh. the fork was never found. So it was not the fork. Hmm modern explanations so um interestingly enough there are no modern documented cases resembling Terrer's condition um so jake like you said if he lived today maybe we wouldn't see something so extreme i don't know if this had like medicine could have cured this for him or at least made the the symptoms not as extreme yeah yeah but nothing else comes up in history as extreme as this yeah but they would be able to troubleshoot a little better (laughs) (laughs) like i think and have more like powerful drugs available and treatment yeah. options and uh, I would hope so. Did they even know what a thyroid was back then? I don't think so, but that brings me to one of the first expo- potential explanations. Oh, so, there we go. Hyperthyroidism, <laughs> um, go. which can induce extreme appetite, rapid weight loss, profuse sweating, heat intolerance, and fine hair, which mm. kind of describes what Terrer looked like. Um, and could be an explanation for many of the the symptoms he experienced. A damaged amygdala um, could also be another explanation, which this type of brain damage in animals can lead to hyperphagia, which is excessive hunger or increased appetite. Another explanation could be a damaged hypothalamus, which that that part of your brain regulates body temperatures and is responsible for causing the sensation of hunger. So it could have had to do with brain damage... Um, having a thyroid condition or potentially just all those things combined with intestinal parasites. He habitually ate raw meat and was like scavenging around in like gutters and stuff. So did he ever get sick from it? I mean, he was just like, I don't want to get into too much detail, but I don't think he was like regular, if you know what I mean. So I don't know if he would have known if that, if if you was. know what I mean? I, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's just so much gross things ejecting out of his body gotcha. that worms probably wouldn't be important. Wow. <laughs> uh, was that too much detail? Uh, but yeah, he was I always... got the image of this guy just like projectile shitting worms everywhere i'm sorry i'm sorry oh no but yeah jake you're totally right what you were saying before um we know he wasn't getting nourishment from the food he was eating so it's potentially that 
um, a combination of things, including parasites, um, like hookworm or roundworm, were mm. also eating the, um, absorbing the nutrients that he needed to survive, and that's why he was still feeling hungry. And it could be like deficiencies in, in some way or another. But yeah, that's the case of Terrer and um, his mysterious right. condition that still not fully explained today, and we have not seen anything as extreme since. Wow. Terrell. Terrell. Well, thank you for sharing that really gross story. (laughs) He could have potentially been helped if he lived today or there was more advanced technology um, Mm. and understanding of medical conditions. Um, He died so young and so many people died of tuberculosis then too. I just feel bad for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. And for the baby that he ate. And I think he was desperate. Like, that's the main thing I'm noticing out of this. He was so desperate. Yeah. He, I mean, we no one knows what they would do for a meal unless you're, like, starving. And some people resort to cannibalism to survive. And maybe that's the, yeah. that's the point that he felt he, he was taken to. Mm-hmm. The place of desperation, like you yeah. said. Mm. Yeah. Sad. Pour one out for Terrer. And that baby. And that ki- those kittens. And, and the, the puppies. puppies. And the snakes. Yeah. And the eel. The eel. Don't forget the eel. So do you guys want to hear what I have? No. Anna Marie, <laughs> tell Melissa to shut up. <laughs> do you want to hear what I have, Anna Marie? Yeah. Cool. All right. Melissa, you can leave. <laughs> and we'll see you in a few minutes. Okay. <clears throat> Bye, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to, for episode one, pick something that blended as many different aspects of the weird together or the fringe together. So this has to do with magic, UFOs, and lots of other stuff combined. So what I'm talking about today is an entity called LAM, L-A-M. And my sources are Wikipedia, which was actually really good. Woot. And a article from Boudillon. Boudillon? Mm. I don't do French either. It's It's a recurring theme in this episode that we're just (laughs) butchering French. (laughs) Dot com slash lamb. So it's it's an article called Aleister Crowley's Lamb and the Little Gray Men. And there was a little Vice article called Magical Stories, and and it's about lamb. So... This story, it's not even really a story, it's just like a bunch of facts, uh, starts out in 1917. Aleister Crowley, the famed occultist and magic person, magic magic working person, people considered him a Satanist, but he wasn't, in my Mm. opinion, at least from what I've read. He he wasn't... He didn't fuck with that. Mm. I mean, he did and he didn't. It's weird. <laughs> but he didn't just fuck with he that. He didn't just fuck with he that. He dabbled. He dabbled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, but no, he wasn't a um, Satanist in any strict sense of the term. He was he was literally a wizard. Oh. <laughs> so, I mean, he was... I mean, he was controversial. He was doing a lot of um, edgy stuff at the time, but... Anyways, he yeah, he so he was pretty much anything in the 20th century that has to do with the occult goes back to Aleister Crowley and Madame Blavatsky. That's the other one. And she was the founder of theosophy in the 19th century. Uh, and we'll talk about her a lot in this podcast. 
I hope to hear more because I don't really know anything. <laughs> cool. So Aleister Crowley in 1917 attempted uh, a piece of ritual magic called the Amalantra working. And the point of the Amalantra working is to tear a rift in reality that provides a kind of portal through which super intelligent beings can manifest themselves or, or like supernatural intelligences can manifest themselves. So the whole point is to sort of generate this portal to the other side mm. by the, tearing open, tearing open reality. Like the upside down. Yeah, actually that's not a bad, it's <laughs> not a bad <laughs> metaphor. Yeah. Uh, actually it's a simile cause you said like, Oh yeah. Um, I never called it a metaphor. I, yeah, I was correcting myself. Oh, I, I said I was, ooh, it was but a I... self own self mm. dunk. Because I feel like Anne Marie and I were thinking it was a burn, but who no one was burned. No, yeah, <laughs> nope. I'm just supplying aloe to my own burn here. <laughs> I burned myself. Okay, so in January through March of 1918, Crowley began a series of magical workings called the Amalantra workings. Now I just realized a second ago I said it was in 1917. It was right at the beginning of 1918 and it lasted three months and he did this in furnished rooms in the central park west uh furnished the furnishings come with the apartment in new york city yeah good (laughs) it's a deal you need to be cozy Uh while you're doing this anyways i'm gonna ignore (laughs) (laughs) y'all so the amalantra workings were performed via sexual and ceremonial magic uh, and that's magic with a K, M A G, I C K. You guys know that. Um, what that does the K mean? It's just how Crowley spelled it. Oh. You know that album by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Yes. No. That's what we're talking about. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Amory's getting excited over here. Nodding extremely. <laughs> So, and that was part of what made him so controversial and, and kind of like people claimed that he was, he was, uh, um, doing like really dark things and he was, he just wasn't a Satanist. (laughs) Just other dark things. Just other dark things. Um, so the intent through this was, like I said, to invoke certain intelligences to physical manifestation. They did not achieve a physical manifestation of... And intelligence, but they did manifest a series of visions and communications that were received by um, Crowley's partner, Roddy Minor. So basically, Minor, as a um, as a medium, would be receiving sort of impressions and visions and messages oh. and stuff, and they were recording all this and taking all this down. And I went and actually looked at the transcripts from this ritual. And they read like complete gibberish, and I didn't have time to like really try. <laughs> you were trying to look at it, but it didn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, have you ever heard like an EVP session before? Yes. And you know yeah. how like that doesn't really make sense exactly if you're not like listening to it, but if you mm-hmm. like read a transcript, it wouldn't make any like a lot of sense. Yeah. It's kind of like that for like a hundred pages. Oh my gosh. And they would communicate through like different um, like numerological values and things, and they had different ciphers that they were using, and like all of the numbers would correspond to tarot cards and different astrological 
like correspondence. So it's just like very complicated, complicated, yeah. intense, intense, very layered. Everything mm. has like wow. different layers of meaning and lots of different connections. Yeah. So like for shorthand, he could just write, you know, like 22 as an answer. Right. And like they understand what that means. Uh, and they might say like a sentence about what that means, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And this text didn't have any footnotes or explanation or anything like that. So I just, I read a couple, like I read like two pages and I was like, okay, I think I get the gist, which is that I can't read this, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So where, you said they're doing sexual magic as well, right? Yes. What's this so sexual about this particular ritual? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't uh, look at the specifics. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, there's some, I mean, I don't know a lot about sex magic in general, although that could be something that we do on the show later sometime. A lot of rituals in general through the ages have involved, um, have involved sexual practices. Um, like most of it has been either like male, female or masturbation, but, um, Crowley was one of the first ones to do male male stuff, Ooh, and that was another reason that wow. he was very controversial in a lot of the esoteric orders that he was making, like these these interventions in and adding these um, sex magic rituals, like that people were upset by in you know, well you know in like yeah. nineteen twenty. Yeah. So that's um, kind of neat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's uncomfortable, <laughs> I guess, uh, just because it's such a weird subject. So, Roddy would channel these things. Roddy Minor. So, actually, one was brought into physical manifestation. I misspoke. Through the magical portal they created. And a portal in this context is is a rent in the fabric of time and space. The entity that came through is the one was called Lamb. And there's a picture of Lamb that Aleister Crowley drew, a sketch that he drew that is widely available. If you go look at it on the Wikipedia page, there's a portrait. I've seen people with t-shirts with this portrait on it, actually. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of awesome. I'm going to look it up right now. I kind of want one. (laughs) Um, But the entity called itself Lamb, or it was named Lamb by Crowley. It was considered to be interdimensional because at the time they didn't have the concept for extraterrestrial i guess maybe in the 20s in the communications with lamb the the symbolism of the egg it was central so like even lamb's head lamb's head looks like a big old egg yeah yeah eggs are important (laughs) so he so he drew this portrait and it looks so one of the freaky things is that it looks almost exactly like a gray alien except for a few little differences yeah it looks like it has eyebrows would an alien have eyebrows don't know maybe could have painted them on (laughs) i just i didn't notice that before (laughs) so crowley included this this sketch in his commentary on madame blavatsky's the voice of silence and below the picture he had this couple lines that said lamb is the tibetan word for way or path and lama is he who goeth the specific title of the gods of egypt the treader of the path in buddhistic phraseology its numerical value is 71 the number of this book end quote 
So other than, but this is the only thing Crowley ever wrote <laughs> about about Lamb. Crowley gave this drawing that he did of this entity that came through their magical rituals to his kind of student Kenneth Grant, and Kenneth Grant sort of sort of took the Lamb concept and, and ran with it. Mm. A lot of different groups have claimed to have contacted Lamb since then. Michael Bertiot in the 1960s um, and the OTO, which is the order Ordo Templi Orientis, which was a order that I think existed before Crowley came along, but Crowley mm-hmm. sort of became its leader for a while or, or really influenced its, uh, its development. These these people consider Lamb to be some kind of like extraterrestrial entity, and think that they've had a lot of success in their invocations of Lamb. Okay, and why it is alleged? And why would they seek out Lamb or want to make contact? So the the only thing I found one of the things I found is that it's not clear why. Okay. I mean the general gist. So I mean in sort of ritual magic and stuff in general making explicit contact with um sort of like supernatural beings is generally seen as like a good thing okay because it's kind of like a transcend like transcending the mundane in some Mm way uh it's not clear that lamb gives you any real like power or or it's not like they're making a pact with lamb or something like that um the thing is occult magical societies on the one hand and then like the ufo community have really kind of come together in a weird way in 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 the figure of lamb right because the lamb came in originally in the practice of ritual magic but like because lamb looks so much like a gray alien people think actually that alistair crowley opened this portal in 1918 in in new york city that then allowed and invited a lot of these similar kind of entities to come through, which is why in the 20th century we've had so many UFO visitations and people have interacted so much with like gray aliens. A lot of people think that that's a direct effect of this working that Crowley did Hmm. in New York at that time. So in other words, Crowley sort of, some people believe that Crowley sort of inaugurated the age of UFOs through this he basically sent out like a signal through this ritual and opened a portal and basically sent an invitation to extraterrestrials. Wow. And now they just keep on coming. Yeah. And it's interesting that like the United States has like a lot more UFOs than other regions mm. generally, at least from what I understand. And Crowley performed this in New York City, mm-hmm. you know. And you referred to this century as the age of UFOs. Is that... Am I correct in saying that? I don't remember. You did. You called it the age of UFOs. I didn't know if there was a change. You're saying in the United States, at least, there's been a change since Alistair Crowley made contact. a lot higher frequency. A lot higher frequency of UFO events in the 20th century. I think. I mean, I guess. Like, I don't know a lot. Like, I mean, obviously, documentation wasn't as good. Right. But, Mm. I mean, there's just been a lot of a lot higher frequency of like ufo sightings and especially extraterrestrial encounters that are especially of the gray alien type you okay know? Mm. 
And those weren't connected previously, or is that a new thing to say that these two, um, I would assume before hearing this from you, that they're two completely separate, you know, entities. What what are lamb and gray lamb aliens? and gray aliens? But what when was it that they were? Not to put you on the spot to answer all my questions, but what when were they considered to be one and the same? Is it like a newer thing? That um so so I think it it really gets it really takes off with Kenneth Grant, like I said, okay. who yeah. sort of takes the lamb thing and runs with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there was a guy on the Hellier documentary, which is if you haven't watched it, it's really good. You should see it. I forgot his name, but he wrote the secret cipher of the Euphonauts. Alan Green. Alan Greenfield. Greenfield. Yeah. yeah. Alan Greenfield nice is one, another Emily. one. Thank you. Thank you. You but, saved me. Thank you. Well, Who were you thanking? <laughs> Almost said, good job, Anne Marie. And then he said, thank you. Oh, no. I didn't hear her. <laughs> I was saying thank you, Anne Marie. Um, Alan Greenfield is another one that sort of combined a lot of Crowley's magical work with ufology so a lot of people a lot of occultists since crowley consider lamb to be actually a class of entity or like a type of entity rather than an individual right which jives with the sort of theory that lamb is equivalent or adjacent to uh gray aliens um so one of the one of the popular practices, I guess popular in scare quotes, like <laughs> popular <laughs> among popular the among this cr- this crowd is to invoke when you invoke lamb you're invoking a, an entity of that type, not a specific being. Um, but like people who operate in the OTO, the the order I was telling you about, they are trying to invoke lamb th- and cr- by creating magical portals and bringing it into a physical manifestation on earth, which is basically just like a repetition of what Crowley was doing. But he was like the, he was doing the original work and now everybody's sort of trying to copy that in their own mini sort of way. Do it again. Invite more to the party. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, right. The, the question is why it's desirable. And the answer in my notes is, it's not so clearly stated. <laughs> so, oh, go ahead. But I feel like that makes sense with any type of magic. Like, no, it's not always clear, especially to people who don't practice magic. Yeah. So there is a quote here about the great work, which is, you know, the magnum opus, which is like the sort of idea, like the alchemical idea of, of this final integration or like transformation or evolution in your own consciousness like through magical means and Crowley just thought that establishing contact with non-human entities was just part of like an important part of that kind of growth Mm. for whatever reason the consensus seems to be that this portal that Crowley opened originally um was the passageway of at least gray aliens, maybe more other kinds of entities into the earth world. So like the upshot then is that like these beings aren't necessarily coming from some other solar system and traveling here through space. It's that they're coming from within our own 
space time, but like through a rift from another dimension. So it's an interdimensional extraterrestrial, not a sort of not on the same plane of existence mm-hmm. as us. That's so crazy. If that makes sense. Yeah. So the aliens are calling from inside the planet. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um. So Crowley is not the only person that has tried to do this. Um. One time there was a uh, Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard, the infamous founder of Scientology, attempted to do a similar kind of working. They called it the Babylon working to open a portal. And, and they had a lot of other things going on, but they were, they tried to open a portal. So, so there's this quote from Sergio Bertolucci, who is the director of the research and science computing at CERN, CERN, which is, like they had this uh, Hadron Collider, this giant machine that would, under Geneva, is the world's largest, most powerful particle collider. And essentially in in 2009, I guess, they conducted this, They were or 2008, they were trying to conduct this experiment that could possibly open a sort of portal. <laughs> And this is coming from not the occult community, from the scientific community. Oh, my gosh. Right? And one quote from Sergio uh, Bertolucci says, quote, Out of this door might come something, or we might send something through it. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) We might open something? I don't know. So it's just, like, insane to me that, like, people sitting underground in Geneva are just, like, trying to rip open space time now this is really getting into stranger things territory. yeah well that's what i'm saying so what i'm trying to get at here is that there's there's people trying to do this with ritual magic Mm -hmm. there's ufologists that are trying to find the origin of aliens and are tracing it back to interdimensional portals Mm -hmm. there's scientific people trying to open up interdimensional portals and they all sort of are doing similar things Mm -hmm. you know so science, ritual, magic, ufology, all sort of connected and lending credence to the idea that UFOs, or at least some kinds of UFOs, like yeah. especially gray aliens, mm-hmm. might actually be physical manifestations of spiritual beings that have come through portals that have been ripped open by various means. Oh my right? gosh. Whoa. Um, so if they open that portal in Geneva, then can you imagine what else could have possibly snuck through <laughs> yeah. that little yeah. that little doorway yeah and I, I it sounds like once you have made contact he they can come through on their own from the other side so if all these people and different yeah. organizations aren't trying to make contact maybe they're it's like you know a cheese grater things are coming through all around us exactly oh man and Cheese there was one theory. quote from some <laughs> there was one quote from somebody somewhere who basically said that the portals that were opened in 1918 or whatever have continued to get wider and wider ever since it was That's scary. Started. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So how how do they know the portals are getting wider? Magic. <laughs> okay. Uh, I trust it. This story is like sort of so all over the place that Mm -hmm. the main thing I just wanted to get at was like the idea that ritual magic and occultism and UFO, the UFO phenomenon are somehow like connected. Mm -hmm. I think that's so crazy. I would not personally connect those in my mind. 
um, and the intersectionality, um, <laughs> all these things. I think it's so cool. Yeah, it's crazy. Just to, like, I would never have expected to link all of those things together. But I, I guess. Just, oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I guess that just goes to show how um, there's so many unexplained things out there. And no matter what your perspective is or, like, your approach, um, people are trying to find answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Or just, like, randomly, blindly rip portals into <laughs> other dimensions and yeah. just see what pops out, I guess. That's fine, too. Yeah. Um, have you guys seen, is it called, like, The Hole? Or, oh, man, what's it called? I think you told me that you the saw hole. it before. And... <laughs> it's not called The Hole. Is it called The Hole? <laughs> oh, The Gate? Yes. Have you guys seen The Gate? Yes. Okay. No. The movie where the boy, um, in his backyard, he's, like, digging up something he keeps trying to dig in his backyard and for some reason like these little aliens are coming out i think it's like a combination of um a meteor strikes down and there's aliens and also there's a dimension so things go into the portal and i feel like sometimes even in movies like we see that yeah like they can come from both and that like aliens also come from a different dimension um maybe they have more advanced technology than us i don't know I was saying, that's so funny. I, I never would have thought of the gate because <laughs> it's <laughs> like a, a comparison portal. to this, but it makes so much sense. It's a portal in the ground, and I just watched The Gate 2, which is much worse than the first one. The first <laughs> oh, one was man. actually a fun watch, um, but the second one, um, the best friend of the original character from the first The Gate movie, he's practicing some weird like techno occult ritual because he wants to summon one of those beings because when you have it in your possession you're able it's able to grant you any of your wishes but then all the wishes turn to poop i don't know it's it's weird (laughs) like they literally turn into sludge and poop interesting i think we need to watch this you really don't need to after party (laughs) um so yeah and the last thing i'll say is i got kind of like turned on to this sort of thread by watching Hellier season two. So if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend watching it. It's a very interesting documentary that ties together like the paranormal UFOs, like strange folklore, mm-hmm. uh, just all in one. Yeah. It's, everything. It's, it's on YouTube and it's on prime. Yeah. Everything we like. I, I mean, I'm yeah. still season one, yeah. you know, trudging through, but sure. you know, everything combined that, we find interesting and that will be on this podcast exactly yep so i yeah actually it was right after we finished season two that we were like hey you remember that podcast you guys were thinking about let's just do it but instead of movies let's just do everything weird because now i'm inspired (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. that was good cool nice job yeah thank you anna marie you may begin a m n a m a r i e I think you missed something. Cool, thank you. What? Do you miss a letter? A N N A M A R I E. Oh, the M I thought was just another A. That you're just like A N N A R I A. I got lost. I have I have an infinite amount of A's in my name, so it's fine. That's how I speak, so that's only appropriate. <laughs> Buckle up for the most disjointed sounds combined together. Yes. All right. Yes, it's my turn now. Um, yeah, I guess. So, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so, I am going to be talking about the tulpa. Tulpa? What? Tulpa. And my sources for this are howtolucid.com. 
Wonderful. Um, a blog called Savage Minds, Notes and Queries in Anthropology, Theosophy.world, uh, info, and of course, lots of Wikipedia to follow up with. Um, all right. So Atulpa is a concept in mysticism and the paranormal of a being or object which is created through spiritual or mental powers. And the word Tulpa comes from the Tibetan word Spropa. Spropa. <laughs> it's kind of a cool word. Um, meaning emanation or manifestation. So historically, it has its roots in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and this is where we first start to see references of um, what in what Buddhist texts call emanational bodies. or That's at least one translation. So one early reference to something like a tulpa is found in the Buddhist text, the... Samanafala Sutta. I know I'm probably butchering that. So no, that was I'm good. Sorry. Nice. Nice. <laughs> um, which translates into English as the fruit of contemplative life. And I'm not sure if this is like the earliest reference to a tulpa, but it's at least some early reference to it. Uh, so just to give a quick rundown on the narrative of this text. Uh, so there's this king, Sutta, who poses the question, what is the benefit of living a contemplative life? And he goes around to a bunch of the leading spiritual teachers in his area, and he's asking this, them this question, but eventually Ajitasutta is like, ah, this isn't good. This isn't good enough. Um, so he finally goes to the Buddha. And the Buddha's answer to his question is just so good that Ajitasutta decides to just become a lay follower of the Buddha. And in one of his, door- his discourses that uh, convinces Ajitasutta to follow him, the Buddha talks about the ability to create a mind-made body as one of these fruits of contemplative life. And some commentarial texts talk about how this mind-made body is actually how the Buddha and others who are far advanced on the path to enlightenment or who have achieved nirvana um, are able to travel to heavenly realms using the continuum of what's called a mind stream. And a mind stream here, if I'm understanding it right, is basically like a stream of succeeding moments or of sense impressions and mental phenomena. And this will make more sense, or as I explain tulpas more, I guess. So people are using their minds to think, and then these thoughts... Very good. (laughs) And then they they, they really think about it, and they make forms and beings... Yes, exactly. What I'm understanding is it's like a, a real imaginary friend. Basically, yes. Okay. Um, all right. So, and this my main body, according to other Buddhist commentaries, is also said to explain the multiplication miracle described in the Divya Avadana. Nice. Um, which is an anthology of Buddhist tales describing works of karma. And this is a story where the Buddha multiplied his Nirmita, or um, an apparitional creation, into an infinite number of bodies which filled the entire sky. And <laughs> so he just, so he just like blotted out the sun by just like, <laughs> like asexually reproducing. With his mind, yes. With his mind, yes. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yes, it's I mean, amazing. if you can do it, why not? <laughs> exactly. I just don't understand, like, what was proved or demonstrated by that miracle. 
I'm not really sure either. It just seems like a really cool, like, like a interesting thing to do, but like, why? <laughs> it's a party trick. So I, there may be, I mean, I can't say for sure, there may be an explanation in the actual okay. text. All right. Um, All right. I'll have to go check oh it out. God. But I don't know. I was going to say, I was so impressed, but I didn't really think like, well, why? There's just, then there's so many of you and you're blocking out the sun. <laughs> Look what I can do. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it's like actually a common thing for, um, like people who have reached nirvana uh to be able to project these apparitions um all at the same time in like an infinite variety of forms oh. and into like different realms so i guess it's just part of the package I don't know. yeah i was gonna ask is that something that was like inherited from like an expectation that was inherited from like hindu like or indian religion that preceded yeah i mean it's the, a possibility i'm not really sure that would make sense to me yeah I mean, it's possible. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure. Impress your friends. <laughs> That's the moral of the story here. <laughs> so, and so the ability to create these apparitions, uh, according to an Indian Buddhist philosopher uh, named Vasu Bandhu, who wrote somewhere between like the fifth, fourth, and fifth centuries, is considered a psychic power. That is developed through Buddhist practices, concentrated discipline, and wisdom. So, I mean, it takes time and a lot of practice to be able to actually perform these sorts of miracles or to create these apparitional bodies. So one other purpose that I found was that these apparitions um, for monks, the monks would create them to overcome attachments like desires or fears. So, for example, if a monk was afraid of snakes, the monk would create an apparitional snake to approach in order to prove that there was nothing to fear. So then the monk would meditate on the experience and the apparition would disappear. Wow. Yeah. You create your own exposure therapy situation. Exactly. Yeah. And then meditate on it. Impressive. Yeah. I can think of so much more fun things to do with this power than creating things I'm scared of. (laughs) Creating things that you are hungry to eat, like a... Sandwich? Ice cream? Creating a, creating infinite ice cream. <laughs> that fills the entire sky. Blotting out the sky with ice cream. <laughs> Sounds like Anna Marie's nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I don't dislike ice cream. That, I mean, I don't dislike ice cream. I just like other you just things better. don't like it that much. <laughs> well, a discussion for another day. <laughs> I was just saying over the break, Anna Marie is the first person that I've ever met that when we're out, I'm like... Man, I really want some ice cream. Let's go get ice cream. And she's just like, eh. Oh, okay. Sounds like a nightmare. Uh, I'm sorry. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. Indifference to ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so now... (laughs) now... Jake, I'm so sorry you live in such a tortured... (laughs) It's a bleak world over here. (laughs) So now... Let's fast forward to the 20th century, where we have theosophists adapting the concept of the emanation body into what we now know as the tulpa, or thought form. So in Western occultism in general, the concept of the thought form is said to have originated as an interpretation of the Tibetan concept of the, of the emanation body 
and is related to Western philosophy and the practice of magic. Um, so one major player in this adaptation was the spiritualist Alexander David Neal, who claimed to have actually observed these practices in 20th century Tibet, and she describes what she saw as, quote, magic formations generated by a powerful concentration of thought. Alexandra David Neal is, like, the most normie name I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like, it's literally as normal as possible. It's just like three un- first names. Just unremarkable, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess having the three first names like, as your whole name <laughs> yeah. doesn't really help. <laughs> um, uh, Ricky Bobby. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. So now here we get into the process of how to actually conjure or create a tulpa. The process becomes less esoteric, I guess, and these creations are observed and analyzed for magical purposes. So in her book, Magic and Mysticism in Tibet, Alexandra David Neal speaks to the experience of actually creating a tulpa herself. And after learning about tulpas, David Neal decided to create one. Um, And to do this, she isolated herself in her tent and performed the rituals and techniques she needed to create a tulpa that looked like a short, fat, jelly monk, kind of like Friar Tuck. So the first part of this ritual took a few months. Uh, During this time, she created a living image in her mind of the monk, down to every last detail. She then started imagining all the things the monk might do if he were a real person, and over time, the image became fixed and even more lifelike and ended up kind of like her roommate after a while. (laughs) Did Um, he also pay rent? (laughs) (laughs) No, he didn't. (laughs) I know. What a mooch. (laughs) So, I guess after she thought the monk was developed enough, she returned to her tour of the country and ended her isolation. Uh, But as she reintegrated with her camp, the monk started to follow her and would add himself to the group as if he were a traveler with the rest of them. Oh, what? Yeah. (laughs) And he would do things with the group and appear Mm, without Dave... Sorry, I don't like it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, just you wait. So he would do things with the group and appear without David Neal actively thinking about him. And it got to the point where she could sometimes feel his robe rub against her. And she also mentioned one time her feeling his hand on her shoulder. Gross. So he's like entering the physical realm. It's like some Joe Biden vibes. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, any listeners that are into Biden. Any Bidenites or whatever they call themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So it does get pretty terrifying at this point. Eventually, the monk's features begin to change. She noticed him becoming smaller, like leaner, and more sinister looking. So he would start glaring at her. Oh my... I don't like that at all. Yeah. I don't like that at all. It's not good. Um, So, like, he became independent, like, of her thought? Yeah, he started to. And and David Neal felt like she was starting to lose control of him. So eventually it got to the point where other people could see him. And I think she finally drew the line when she went to receive mail and the mail carrier saw the monk creepily waiting for her in her tent. Uh, so like, um, excuse me, <laughs> in real life, someone saw yes this thing she created in her mind. Yes. The mail carrier was like, oh, I didn't know that you had someone staying in your tent. And then and she she's like, oh, I did it. Yeah. She turns around and sees the monk like creepily staring at her. From the, the darkness of inside the tent. Cue Kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fighting scene song. 
Exactly. So this is where I think she's just like, this needs to stop. He's real to other people and is super creepy. So she bye-bye. shut it down. Exactly. So to do that, to shut it down, she performed a ritual to destroy the tulpa. So basically, she had to end her own created belief in its existence. And this took six months to finally accomplish. So a really long time. Can I ask a follow-up question? Yes. What did she have to do ritual-wise to destroy it? So I'm not super sure, but I, my guess is that it's some sort of, it's more meditation. So she has to unravel her own created belief in this monk. Right. So she has to basically unthink her thoughts. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because all the rituals that, that... sounds actually really hard. Yeah, well, I mean, that's you why... You like brainwash yourself. Yeah, that's... I'm, my guess is that's why it's, it took six months. Wow. And this is just evidence of another thing David Neal mentions in her book, which is really terrifying, and that's that tulpas can actually develop a mind of their own and become free of their maker's control. So this whole thing reminds me, and I think this is a supernatural episode, when there are people who put scary stories on a website and then there's a symbol on the website that is like, I don't know if it's related to this, but because of the symbol, it gives power to whatever they're believing in or whatever the story is. So the more people believe it, then the stronger it is and the more physical this being becomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they have to like take down the website am i right in saying that supernatural i th- well i know that there is an episode of supernatural that talks about or that has a tulpa in it i think it's called hell house it was in season one i don't remember which episode it was but it's the guy who or the the ghost or tulpa that's inside this cabin and he Yes, and it has, like, the podcasters or the video. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. Is that with Ghost Facers? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Cool. All right. Anne-Marie just got me into Supernatural. I'm on episode three. (laughs) Oh, you're in for a wild ride. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. So other theosophists of the time also wrote about tulpas, or a lot of times they call them thought forms. Uh, So one of these people is Annie Besant, who divided thought forms into three classes. So one, forms in the shape of the person who creates them. Two, forms that resemble objects or people and may become ensouled by nature spirits or by the dead. And three, forms that represent inherent qualities from the astral or mental planes, such as emotions. So Annie Besant wrote in her book called Thought Forms with this other guy named Charles Ledbetter. Is that how you pronounce it? How did you pronounce it? I think so. I just guessed. Okay. I don't know. That's a guess, too. (laughs) And in their book, they pointed out that these forms are made out of the same material or matter as the thinker's mental body, and that the image of this form floats in the upper part of the body in front of the person's face right at about eye level. And it remains there as long as the person keeps thinking about it, but can actually continue thereafter depending on the intensity of the thought. So again, it's that same concentration and then development into independence. And that makes sense. In order to see it, it should be in front of the eyes. Yes. You need to be able to see it (laughs) with the eyes. (laughs) I'm just so fundamentally freaked out by this tulpas becoming sentient and like unlinked from you. 
Especially if it looks uh, like you. Yeah, mm. I don't like this. Anyways, I mean, I think I think the idea of a tulpa is interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't, keep going, keep yeah. going. I'm just saying, I'm a little... <laughs> the, the, that little anecdote was just kind of... I don't know. That's fair. It's really creepy. You done spooked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so another one of these people is William Walker Atkinson, who in his book, The Human Aura, said that a thought form is a simple ethereal object emanating from the aura surrounding a person and is generated by that person's thoughts and feelings. So later in his book, Clairvoyance and Occult Powers, he elaborates on this definition, talking about how experienced practitioners of the occult can actually produce thought forms from their auras that serve as astral projections, which may or may not look like the person projecting them, or also as illusions that can only be seen by people with, quote, awakened astral senses. Like the little boy in Insidious. Yeah, yes. So related to, related to this, and another thing I found interesting is that you can create a form to protect another person, and that will remain in that person's aura. So it comes from projecting affects, I guess it would be. Like um, a Patronus? <laughs> maybe. That's a possibility. And you can project these affects of love to another person, and that way it's kind of like creating a guardian angel, so to speak, around someone that you care about. But of course, on the other side of this, we have the projection of evil thoughts, which obviously do the opposite of protecting someone by actually actively causing harm. That's some bad juju. Yeah, don't want that. So now I'm just going to take a second to talk about tulpomancy. Um, and I talked a little bit about how tulpas are created according to Alexandra David Neal's experience in Tibet. Um, so really just that extreme concentration and meditation on the created image in the mind. Um, and this is basically what has continued to be. So I did find a few manuals, if you will, on how to create a tulpa. Um, so we can make our own tulpa right now. Right here, right, right now. Let's get this started. Very moment. But just so you know, sometimes this can take about 200 to 500 hours. Okay, well, we have to start at some oh, point. Yeah. Start right now. <laughs> Every journey begins with the first step. And that first step is googling wiki how how do you create a tulpa mm. which is what i have here is the wiki how page the indispensable source of wiki how mm. yes so i will run through this fairly quickly because okay. there are quite a few steps by the time we're done we'll have a tulpa oh we'll have three of them there'll be six of us in this room <gasps> a little bit of a crowd <laughs> great okay so first you have to plan so think long and hard before you create a tulpa got it i'm thinking jake what are you thinking is your tulpa danny devito <laughs> from the scene and it's always sunny where he's covered in hand sanitizer <laughs> and crawling on the floor saying i want to be pure <laughs> <laughs> all lubricated oh my god i don't know if i want that in our house Danny DeVito all lubed up. <laughs> Danny DeVito all lubed up. <laughs> oh my gosh. Not in a sexual way. No. <laughs> I just can only, I can imagine like a tulpa. It's following you around. It slides all on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a combination of like regular Danny DeVito and like a slug. Yes. Oh, just like leaving perfect. a trail of hand sanitizer behind oh, him. Oh no. That's so gross, but yet. Yeah, can want... that be my tulpa, baby? I, um... 
No comment. Please. I don't know if I want to clean up Can all we that hint. Keep him? <laughs> oh. He isn't even here yet, so that's true. I and still have like, <laughs> I still have uh, 199 hours and like for 55 minutes left. Yeah, you got a lot of time. Okay. Well, it sounds like you've already taken on one of the other steps, which is to plan your tulpa's appearance. And this can help by drawing. Short. Bald. Wait, didn't you say that you have to, like, in your imagination, like, explore every little nook and cranny of I'm this? I'm getting to that. Oh, because then I'm going to have to do that with Danny DeVito covered in hand sanitizer. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I guess I'm down. <laughs> so you have to also plan your Tulpa's personality. Grumpy. Um, drunk all the time. <laughs> right basically yeah yeah okay so the next step is visualization so you really want to visualize your tulpa sit down and close your eyes imagine your tulpa in your head look at them (laughs) look at them from any possible angle you can think of (laughs) Try (laughs) try to visualize every detail of their appearance but be patient and take time visualizing them don't miss those special parts of him. Come on. I was just trying to think about his kind face. In this slippery body. His kind <laughs> face. We're going to keep it there. Next. Yeah. Try to touch your tulpa in your imagination. Ooh. <laughs> try, try to feel their hair, if they have any. And the details on their body. Ooh, all those details. Yeah, all those details, those good, solid details. My tulpa is kind of slippery. <laughs> you keep trying to grab on, but he just slips <laughs> He away. just keeps sliding out. <laughs> oh, you're going to love this next one. Next, create a scent if you wish. <laughs> oh, good lord. It's those volatile alcoholic vapors. <laughs> and doesn't he have, like, demon burps? I feel like he's always, like, grunting and burping. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> Well, that's basically what I do, so. <laughs> so now I have to have two of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then next, visualize your tulpa's movements. Again, slipping around. All over. So then you also want to create their wonderland. Where? What? what, 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 what? The wonderland is the, the environment in which your tulpa exists and grows and develops and speaks. Patty's Pub. Yeah. That was easy. Yeah. Patty's. Patty's. <laughs> what was that song that Charlie did? I like life at Patty's Pub. So then the next step is narration. So you want to talk to your tulpa. You can talk to them inside your mind or out loud. Uh, so basically... <laughs> Go just... ahead, Jake. Talk out loud to your tulpa. <laughs> What's up, man? What's up, my man, Danny? You look wet. Oh, oh, oh. I can only imagine Anna Marie is just like trying to read a book or something, and she just hears Jake talking. <laughs> like, who are you talking to, Jake? I'm just saying what up to my man Danny. He's covered in lube. Oh, oh goodness. Tol- Tolpa, Tolpa, De- Danny, Tolpa, DeVito. No, Danny, De no. Tol. Okay. Danny right. De Tolpa Vito. <laughs> All right, and then you want to check sentience. Determine whether your tulpa is sentient. Close your eyes and tell your tulpa you're opening your mind to them. Imagine them walking through a door that leads into your subconsciousness. Your tulpa can now see your memories. 
how you feel and everything about you as a person. How does that make you feel about uh, your boy Danny? That's super personal stuff. I feel very vulnerable. Yeah. I guess you have to be to get a tulpa because it's basically a projection from your mind. So in part, (laughs) its sentience comes from you, right? I just think me and Danny DeVito have taken this relationship to a new level. I think so, too. And we'll see where it goes in the next 200 to 500 hours. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) All right. So so that's basically it. Eventually, there's also the step of moving your tulpa into reality, which is to like go for a walk and imagine your tulpa following behind you. That's one of the last steps on this WikiHow page. But that sounds like something that you don't want, Jake. Why not? I love to walk. You want Dan DeVito covered in hand sanitizer <laughs> just following you wherever you go? I have to think about it, but I don't really see a downside. Okay. I think, okay. I think based on the anecdotes that Anna Marie said earlier, I mean, at this point, we know it's sentient, and then if it bring it into reality, it can do whatever it wants. He, he might become wa Danny DeVito. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, oh. I dare not imagine. <laughs> wow. I'm just saying Danny DeVito would make a great Wario if they ever did a live action. Oh, you're saying a Waluigi. Yeah, like a Waluigi version of Danny DeVito. Wow. Wow. <laughs> just like the sort of like evil mirror version of Mario. Yeah. What's the opposite of Superman. Oh, War- Bizarro. Uh, Bizarro. <laughs> You're saying Wario. <laughs> Wario. <laughs> That's not right. Wah, Superman. <laughs> and just goes around flying going, wah. <laughs> wah. <laughs> uh, okay, so now that we've gotten the steps down, I think there are just a couple other terms that are useful to know. So... We mentioned visualization, wonderland, narration. So there's also what's called forcing, which is focusing on... That sounds like something you do on the toilet. Oh my gosh. Okay, so then... Toilet. <laughs> okay, so there's this other term called forcing, uh, which is focusing on and developing a tulpa's presence by interacting with them. And there's there are two different kinds. So there's active forcing, so during meditation, paying explicit attention to the tulpa. And there's passive forcing, which is giving attention to the tulpa while also doing something else. So then you also have imposition which or proje- projection, which is physically hallucinating the presence of the tulpa in the real wor- world which can range from feeling their presence or actually seeing or touching them. There's deviation, which is a change that occurs to a tulpa's personality or form independent of and possibly against the conscious will of the host. So, that's... That's what I don't like. You don't... Yeah, you don't want that with Danny. That's when Danny becomes Wa Danny. Yeah. He turns around in his purple cap. (laughs) Oh, no. His eyes have been darkened. Yeah. His facial features have slimmed. This sounds to me like it's getting in the unhealthy realm. Like, it's mm. this is not good. And if forces within you are acting against your best interest, I can't imagine that would be something anyone would want. No. Forces against me are acting against my own interests all the time, though. <laughs> like, sixth taco. I mean, by the time you're at the sixth taco, that's forces within you. Acting against your best interests. I guess. Maybe you should just 
create a tulpa of a seventh taco. <laughs> and then eat that. Oh, and then if you ate a tulpa taco, would that have calories? Anna Marie? Does it say that I in your notes? No. Oh, mm, tulpa nutrition. I'm not sure. Okay, so then there's also dissociation, so detaching from one's surroundings, or perhaps more severely, eliminating one's sense of identity, often to the point of actual separation from oneself. So this wow. is also where it can get really dangerous. Wow. And according to the website howtolucid.com, um, you can never really finish making a tulpa. They evolve, continue to learn, change, adapt, grow, just like people. So and it. Sorry to interrupt. No, was, it just takes it, continuous energy. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Um, and I think especially as it transitions to a place where it becomes more independent. <laughs> hmm. so. And also apparently it's not so much about the techni- technique as it is about trusting that sentience of the image is possible and really just using whatever concentration and visualization method that works best for you. So it seems pretty individualized. <laughs> it sounds like the next step should be most importantly have fun i think that is one of them somewhere are you serious that's <laughs> like a perfect so. WikiHow article then I think like so. that's that's the last step of every WikiHow article yep have fun with it yeah exactly have fun with your tulpa this might be the scariest thing of all is when you can apparently inadvertently create a tulpa if you focus on a thought too much so I'm just thinking about all the thoughts that I just obsess over and replay over and over in my mind. <laughs> if those all came true, mm. tell me one. No, I guess like if you have an obsessive, um, like a disorder where you're obsessive about something, um, an anxiety disorder of some sort, where there's a right. particular thing that makes you um, feel extremely anxious, mm-hmm. I, you may just continue to ruminate to the point where you're making it real. Exactly. Yeah. Or like if you have like a Waluigi fetish and then all of a sudden all of a sudden Waluigi is just standing there in front of you one day. That sounds a little different from what Melissa was just talking about. I'm just saying there's I different that's ways. You, yeah, that's if you want to see more of something. That's true. I don't think that's inadvertent. But, like you, I think that's... but you didn't intend to create the tulpa. You just really You're thought right, about yeah. it. You were just really thinking about Waluigi. Is that... Is that why Are you I trying hear... to tell us something, Jake? Yeah. Is that why I hear wah in the middle of the night? <laughs> oh. oh, man. You're a, you're a licensed counselor, aren't you? Uh, I'm not licensed, but I'm certified. Uh, <laughs> wah. Wah. Yeah, we got to work some stuff out real quick. Uh, play the we have to record music. it, though. Yeah. <laughs> Only the Patreon donors get access to our... <laughs> our marriage counseling. Our live marriage counseling on Patreon. <laughs> $20 a month. <laughs> Bless you all. Uh, okay, so now let's move on to modern Tulpamancy. So Tulpamancy is still alive and going strong. Um, it's become this whole cultural phenomenon re-emerging through the internet in the 2000s. So for people today who use the term Tulpa, this basically refers to a willed imaginary friend who is sentient and relatively autonomous. So just like you said earlier, Jake, like, basically imaginary friend so so could children who obviously a lot of kids have imaginary friends i think this goes back to you know making one making a tulpa without realizing it Mm -hmm. i wonder how many kids 
given that this theory could potentially be true, like I know I used to really want an imaginary friend. So I would pretend that I had one and really think about like a bunch of rainbow puppies. Um, <laughs> where like, my imaginary friend. Um, but yeah, I imagine that this could accidentally happen often. But I just think kids don't have the power of like focused attention and concentration. That oh yeah. Is, I like, could see that. Necessary. Mm, that's true. So tulpas really gained popularity in the late 1990s and 2000s, and it was in about 2009 where people started posting on 4chan about experimenting with tulpas. Um, And this is where, of course, My Little Pony comes in. So fans of the show, also known as bronies or Pegasisters, uh, (laughs) tried to use meditation and lucid dreaming techniques to create imaginary friends after watching the show. Guys, I just found out about Bronies as she was doing this research. And? Are you loving it or what? I don't know what to say. Okay, that's all you have to show. I I will say that... It's very positive. Yeah, there are a lot of aspects of it. I don't know if every community within this larger community is like this, but I was we were watching a trailer for a documentary on Bronies, and... People were really sweet and really tolerant and accepting. And it was just a community where people got together who all had this similar interest and they were very like encouraging of each other. I don't know. It was nice. That is nice. So that's all you can really hope from like um, groups that are different from the norm that they within themselves are able to make like a community where they can support each other and really be accepting of uh, different tastes. Mm-hmm. I mean, did we define it? What a Def- brony is for people that don't know what bronies are. Oh no, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tell uh, us yeah. it, what. Like, Anna to Marie, be clear, what? like bronies, <laughs> like they're. Lo- it seems, at least as far as I understand it, to be a generally like positive subculture. But it is like grown men that are into My Little Pony, right? Oh, many of them, yes. And there is a negative context from what I've seen on the internet of what people think about Brodies. So if you, people may have heard of them before in that situation. Yeah, that's why I said like. Wait, I- wait, like people make fun of them? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously understand why they get made fun of because like it's a very strange juxtaposition of like grown men and women like being really 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 into a children's cartoon uh but at the same time we we just all watch spongebob for like (laughs) for like a half hour and can quote it pretty and can quote it yeah exactly and i'm pretty sure if there was a spongebob convention down the street like i don't know we'd probably drop in Okay. I would probably drop in. I would Melissa would probably in. be there like when it opened. I would be setting up. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be running the show. So yeah. anyways, to all of our listeners who uh, who self-identify as brownies, this is a pro bro pro, pro, pro This is a pro bro <laughs> We're providing you pro bono support. <laughs> we are pro brony on this podcast. Yes. As pro long as every- bono, pro bo- brony support. That's <laughs> really hard to say. <laughs> so overall, it seems that, and just in general, that tulpamancers uh, treat their tulpas as a real or somewhat real person. It really seems like modern tulpamancy is speaking to issues with like social anxiety, feelings of isolation, and creating a tulpa is 
actually a way of working through this. And I, I was watching an interview with a, a woman who has a tulpa and she was explaining that like prior to her tulpa, she felt very just like lonely and didn't really know where else to turn. So she, I guess, found this as an option and now she said that like her anxiety's gone down, her depression's gone down. So this wow. is really interesting how that how that works. I mean, I think just companionship in general is a good yeah. thing. So and as a coping mechanism too, like to a certain degree, we everyone uses so many different types of coping mechanisms, which in extreme or overuse can be harmful. But mm-hmm. if it's working, it's working, right? Right. Yeah. And there are, like, statistics that say that, like, it actually does increase, like, happiness or, like, it, it makes any sort of, like, mental health issue that someone's had prior to a tulpa better wow. after. So, okay. So then, of course, just to push it a step further, and the part that I feel like everyone actually secretly wants to know is that, yes, some people do have romantic and sexual relationships <laughs> with their tulpa. I mean, you answered that already by talking about bronies. <laughs> That's, in some ways, yes. We were talking about how wholesome they are. <laughs> They're not just imagining their pony friends to think about them and be friends with them. There's some people who take it to the next level. Some people do, yes. There are lots of online communities for people interested in creating tulpas. You see stories of people falling in love with tulpas. Some of them fall in love with them without knowing that they're a tulpa. And then there are what? stories of... Yes. Could you imagine? Uh, yeah. Yep. That's That was a story that I found on one of the forums. It might have been on Reddit. Yeah. There are also stories of tulpas like singing creepy, morbid nursery rhymes. That's not okay. Yeah. So, like, you get lots of... You get a variety of stories on these, these forums. So, um, really interesting to look into. So... That's it. Yeah, that's it. Nice. Awesome. Very it's, cool. It's so interesting to think how the belief in a tulpa is really belief that the mind is capable of creating something strong enough to have a relationship with or exist mm-hmm. in the real world. So that's, yes. so that's super cool. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I dig that story. Cool. And Except nice I job. don't like I don't like it when they turn evil. Well, I don't like Watulpa. Wow. <laughs> well, we'll see where Danny goes. Oh, Lord. In the next however many hours. Oh. <laughs> I, 200 I hours I'm... is like 100 days, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, well, we've got time. We have time. I know I'm scared because I live in the same space as you. Here we go. All right. And potential Danny to be We will Tulpa. report back. <laughs> we have some business to take care of. Um, really focus on these tulpas we have to make <laughs> yeah all right so on that note <laughs> thanks for listening to the first episode of weird obscure and possibly unsafe you can find us on Instagram at Weird Obscure Podcast. You can also find us on the Twitter.com at Weird Obscure Pod. And while we're at it, I want to thank Matt Baker for our 
exquisite artwork. Yes. Thanks, and, Matt. Yeah, thank you, Matt. And we also want to thank Jake, member of this podcast, who was speaking just oh, a second ago oh for the for the intro and um, the other music. Oh. So nice. Yeah. Don't mention it. Real groovy. <laughs> I'll never bring it up again. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.